Good morning, church. Before we jump into Psalm 4 this morning, I want to just let you know that on August 21st, there's a full solar eclipse. Uh, most of you guys are probably up on that news. You've, you've stayed aware of that situation and the hysteria that surrounds that and the fact that hotel rooms in the actual full shadow are going for like $900,000 a night in places. It's just crazy. People from all over the world are coming to America to watch this solar eclipse. And so um, what I, I want to... What I want to do is reconnect my iPad to the internet so I can have my notes. Could, could somebody grab my phone for me? You want to do it? Okay. Could you give me your phone number awkwardly in front of everybody so that I can send you the code so that I can log back in? Basically, so the, the eclipse is, will you do this for me? Uh, the eclipse is on a Monday, the 21st of August. So on Sunday before, on the 20th, um, we're just going to have everybody over the house after church at 1230 for a potluck. And I'm going to do a little bit of teaching. What does the Bible actually say about this? right? What's the biblical perspective? There's so much hysteria. There's so much hype. Um, scripture does talk about signs in the sun, moon, and stars uh, related to the day of the Lord. What, what, what does this mean? What does this mean? So if that's intriguing to you at all, uh, just make plans to be at the house. We'll have some print materials next week, and I'll uh, blitz social media this week so you can share that with people. And um, It's funny because there'll be a lot of people outside of the realm of the people in this room right now that you know that are go man, I, I might actually come to that. I want to hear about that. And so maybe this is a good connection for folks who, who might not otherwise darken the door of Emmaus Road. So, uh, or maybe you're just curious. And right now I'm really just buying time while Katie logs me back into the Wi-Fi. How are we coming on that? That's awesome. Thank you for doing that. It's really hard for me to multitask and do that while I'm trying to talk about something else. I don't do that well. So thank you for jumping in. Psalm 4. A song of gladness. Now, my, uh, my sophomore year of college, so I had a, if you don't know my story, I had a full scholarship to Clayton State University in Atlanta to sing. I was a vocal performance major. I had a full ride. Uh, but I met a girl. And that girl had a full ride to Troy State University in um, Alabama, almost, let's see, it was an hour south of Montgomery, Troy, Alabama is, in the middle of nowhere. Right? The only reason you go to Troy is to get to Dothan so that you get to Panama City Beach if you're going on vacation. Uh, it was like a two-horse town, right? And, and so there's Troy State in the middle of nowhere, Alabama, and the girl that I am head over heels with, Twitter-pated with, is in Troy. And so I did what any red-blooded American guy would do, not really, only the foolish ones. I gave up my full ride at Clayton State and I transferred to Troy State University my sophomore year. And I walked onto the tennis team and uh, they said, <laughs> uh, you can be the tackling dummy, so there's no scholarship money there. And then um, I, I went into the music department and they said, yeah, we've got scholarship money. How's $300 a semester? And I'm like, uh, nothing. That's nothing. That's what that is. Thank you. But so for my whole year of school, I was at Troy State University. And I had this roommate, uh, you know, when you don't go to school with someone, the people you know from high school, you get paired with people in your dorm. And I was paired with this guy and uh, a little questionable at first. And I thought, I'm not sure this is going to work out. And he turned out to be a pretty decent guy. But, it, but at one point during the year, we, he had this really awful habit of going down the hall to the showers and leaving the dorm room door wide open. Just standing open, whether I was there or not, he'd just leave the dorm room door open. Like the whole floor was his house. And, right? and, and so come back to my room one afternoon from uh, eating and um, 
and we've been robbed. We have been robbed. And um, all of my, and this is not going to resonate with many of you, but for, for me it was very precious, all of my Petra CDs were gone. And if you know who Petra is, just 80s classic Christian rock, had all of them, and it was spectacular, and they're all gone. I'm like, who would steal Petra CDs? They're a Christian band, right? And so I even, I even found the, I even found the pawn shop in, because there were like two in Troy, right? Where the, where they were, they had been pawned, and then the guy was like, well, you can buy them back, and I was like, no, they're mine, they're mine, and um, anyway, so uh, still a little bit of grievance there, um, still a little suspicious of my roommate. Um, I was angry. Right. Anytime you've been robbed, if you if you if you've had stuff stolen from you, you feel angry, you feel violated. The 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 emotion, the the response that I did not have was one of gratitude. I did not immediately feel like, man, I'm so glad that this happened. I'm experiencing gratefulness and gladness at being violated. That, that, that's not my first response, and it's not our default response when somebody wrongs us. In fact, um, as I prayed about that. God had me write a letter, and I went around and posted it on campus, wishing the best for this thief, uh, especially that he or she would listen to all my Petra CDs and get saved, right? So I posted this letter all over campus, and the result was that some benefactors that I still don't know who it was read that letter and ended up sending me to a Petra concert because they read the letter. And so I was like, out of all that, I got to, I got to go to a Petra concert weeks later. So God turned my anger and my frustration into gladness when I acted in faith in a way that honored him. It was this weird thing. I just remember this life lesson as a sophomore in college, right? One of, one of Satan's most successful lies, I think, is that God is a cosmic killjoy who wants everybody to be miserable. And people view God as this great sadist in the sky who gets perverse delight in making his creatures miserable. But even, I think, a casual reading of the Bible, especially the book of Psalms, uh, gives us a view to the contrary, that God is a being who has great joy personally and that he wants everyone who comes to know him to enter into that lasting sense of gladness and peace and joy in his presence. The, the Psalms overflow with the theme of gladness. In fact, I'll just read you a couple here. Psalm 50 verse 14 says, offer to God the sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the most high, right? As you come to him, your heart's overwhelmed with gratitude and thanks. In Psalm 105, the psalmist says, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people. The idea is like when we cultivate gratitude towards God, what happens is this wellspring of telling people about how good he is because we're glad in him, right? And then Psalm 107, 8 says, Thank the Lord for his steadfast love, his wondrous works to the children of man. So constantly there's this, God is doing amazing things on our behalf. He's working in our lives. And the result of that ought to be hearts overflowing with gratitude and thanksgiving. And then this permeating sense of joy and gladness because God is in control and he's got this, right? So, so, when you, so scripture says like when you sit down to a meal, what do we do? What do we do? We give thanks, right, right. And, and, and when you lie down in your bed to rest or you're tucking your kids at night and, and you're praying for your kids, there's this, let's, let's stop and thank God. Let's give thanks. And when you rise up in the morning, Scripture says, give thanks. And when you're in the throes of sickness in your bed with the flu for three weeks, give thanks. And, w- and when you come out of that sickness and you're well again, give thanks to the Lord. And when you're driving or when you're sitting in class or when you 
when you're stuck in the nursery at Emmaus Road Church and um, you're surrounded by people that are knee tall, give thanks to the Lord. Whatever you do, give thanks. And these expressions of gratitude and gladness draw our hearts closer to God. That's what they do. They draw us closer to God. Spurgeon says it this way. This is uh, Charles Spurgeon. There's a marvelous medicinal power in joy. Most medicines taste really awful. But this medicine, the best of all medicines, is sweet to our taste and comforting to our hearts. This blessed joy is contagious. One downcast spirit brings a a plague into the house. One person who is wretched seems to stop all the birds from singing wherever that person goes. But the grace of gladness is contagious. Holy joy will oil the wheels of your life's machinery. Holy gladness will strengthen you for your daily labor. Holy gladness will beautify you and give you influence over the lives of others. I love that perspective. I love that perspective. So look at me, look look with me at Psalm 4 this morning because I think this psalm above all others captures this idea of gladness. David says, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Selah. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts and on your beds and be silent. Selah. Offer right sacrifices. Put your trust in the Lord. There are many who would say, who can show us anything good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than than they have when their grain and new wine abound. In peace I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. God, give us wisdom on this psalm. Teach us what your intent here is for us as your people. What it is you want to communicate to us. Father, we confess that we do not live in a perpetual state of gladness. Uh, Things wreck our hearts and distract us from giving thanks to you. Would you teach us to walk with attitudes and hearts of thanksgiving and fill us with gladness even this morning as as we worship you together and listen to your word here in this place. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let's go back to verse one. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You've given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. I love this calling out to God. Calling out to God. Do you call out to God? Do you do that in your moments of distress? Do you, do you make it a priority to call out to him first? Or do we run to our spouse? Or do we run to our trusted friend? Or do we run to our parents? Are we going to God? Are we calling out on him? Do you believe in faith that he hears you when you pray and when you call out to him in your moments of need? Because he, he's asking us, he's inviting us to call out to him. David says, oh God of my righteousness, which really is the basis for our being able to call upon him. 
He's given us his righteousness. And then he, he expects us to call upon him. And then he hears us and he answers us. David says, give me relief. This is the idea of God as being the one who vindicates us. Um, vindicate um, the idea he stands behind you. Um, imagine like the little kid standing up to the bully on the playground. The little kid's like four and the bully's probably 12. And, and the little four-year-old doesn't know that his dad's standing behind him with his arms crossed, you know? And th- that's the idea of vindication. Like God's standing behind you as you're confronting Satan and your circumstances in the world. And he's standing there. He's got your back. He, and he's plenty powerful enough, right? And so he stands behind you when you're facing trouble. And, and, and God says, vengeance is mine. And when people wrong you, God says, I'm going to fight your battle for you. I'll take care of that for you. So frees us from the affliction that comes when we try to make war ourselves and try to take that on ourselves. He's gracious to us. It says he hears our prayers. And there's so much comfort and relief in just going to him in prayer Instead of striving in our own strength to try to deal with the situations that life brings us. So comforting to be able to do that. And so he says, oh men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? How long is a question of justice? When you feel like you're on the short end of the stick when it comes to life being unfair and it seems to drag on and on and there's no relief inside and how long do I have to bear this burden, God, please. Justice delayed is not justice denied. God has a timing in everything that he does. And so this rhetorical question that's being asked here, how long, is being directed not at God but at other people. Right, we we know that because look at the second question: How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? That's not true of God, right? So we know that David's directing this to other people, right? He's asking the question, and and really, uh, this this theme of how long will these things go on? How long will we seek after vanity and worthless things? Read Ecclesiastes one and two this week. We'll pick a sunny day so that you're not overly depressed, right? Just read Ecclesiastes chapter one and two. Solomon writes about this whole theme of life is meaningless under the sun. This phrase, under the sun, this closed system uh, that we would call naturalism, right? But God is not under the sun. He's outside of that system. He's the one who made it. But, but if your worldview is locked into reality under the sun, Anything that you give your life to, Solomon says, ultimately leads you to the place of futility and meaninglessness. It's vanity of vanities, he would say. Life is meaningless. A pursuit of that which is worthless. So here's, here's David, here's daddy, and then Solomon later writing, life apart from God and the pursuit of God is ultimately meaningless and worthless. It's a lie. It's a deception. And so that's why David's saying, how long are you going to, Seek after things that are lies. How long are you going to chase after vanity and deception? How long? David's posing these questions to the people around him who are not relying upon God. They're not worshiping God. They're not delighting in God. And so the point here is that these injustices, the seeming injustices, cannot go on forever. They're not going to go on forever. And there's an inherent warning here in verse 2 to those who are listening to this, 
to turn to God while there's still time and put your faith in him and trust him while you still can. This reality, this feeling of like things are always wrong and I feel beat down, that's not going to go on forever, right? But while you have the mental faculty, while you have the ability, turn to God, trust God, put your faith in God. Verse three, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself and the Lord hears when I call to him. That's the contrast now, right? David says he set apart the godly. That's the, that's the concept of holiness, right? Holy is, uh, is just a word that means other. It's other. I, it was so great. I had this uh, perfect object lesson last week at Salt. We were talking about holiness in First Peter, and um, I had a cup of Coke from Wendy's. And you, you know when you get the drink, they have the lid. It says cola, tea, other. Like, who orders other? And who would drink other? Like, if the other's depressed, I'm like, you can have that back. I, I don't even know what other is, right? It's weird that it's even on the lid, other, right? But other is the concept of holiness. It's, it's God is different than. He's set apart. He's distinct from, right? He's not normal. He doesn't fit into our categories or our boxes. He's infinite, and he can't be fully understood. You cannot manipulate God. You cannot control him. He's other. He's holy, so maybe before you go to bed tonight, take some time to read Psalm 50, right? Because God, in, in Psalm 50, he talks about his holiness in this way. He says, look, I don't, I don't need you to bring me animals for sacrifice because I'm hungry and I need food. I, that's not what this is about. I don't need you. I don't, I don't need you to keep the temple nice and clean in a balmy 72 so that I don't catch a cold. Thank you very much. He's just got this rhetorical like kind of laying everybody low in Psalm 50. Like, I don't, I don't need you guys to do this stuff for me. Like I'm, I'm beholden to you to keep me propped up. He said, I'm God, I'm holy, I'm other than. He said, I'm not a man like you, I'm God, right? This is a great Psalm to remind us of God's holiness. And this otherness of God is what we refer to as his holiness. First Samuel uh, says, there's none holy like the Lord. There's none besides him. And Isaiah 40 says, who, God says, who are you going to compare me to? That, that, I, that you could be able to say to him, oh, he's like the Holy One. Who, 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 who is in the same category with me? Nobody. Hosea says it this way. Um, God is not a man, but the Holy One is in your midst. And in the end, God is holy and that he is God. He's not, he's not like anything else we know. He's incomparable, incomparable. Depends on which syllable you put the emphasis, really. He's, his holiness is utterly unique. It's his divine essence. It determines all that he is and does and is determined by no one else. So call it his majesty. Call it his divinity, his greatness, his value. Um, in the end, the language just kind of runs out when we talk about holiness. And so we have this word holy. Um, it's like sailing to the world's end and then just in utter silence and reverence and awe because you've run out of you run out of words, right? Holy is just kind of this idea. And this is the holy God who hears his faithful ones. Now that's crazy. I want you to just think about that for a minute. The psalmist says that God breathed out stars, right? He just said, stars, right? And he knows every grain of sand on every seashore. He could give you the number. He could give you the count. He knows the depths of the oceans, right? And this, and this is the same God who hears us when we pray to him. 
When we call upon him, he hears us. He's intimately involved with us. And so um, the question is, are you a faithful one? He says, I hear my faithful ones. How can you know if you're a faithful one? Faithful, break that word down, faith and full. Are you full of faith? Are you filled with faith? Are you a person who's acting in faith? The first act of faith is to trust Jesus alone for salvation, to repent of sin and turn away from it and place your trust fully in him. Are you filled with faith? Because those are the people that he hears. He hears them when they call to him. And so verse four says, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Selah. And then there's that word that means stop and listen, consider this, right? Be angry at sin. This, this may be news for some of you. And some of you have been in church, maybe your whole lives. Anger is not sin. Did you know that? I think that we, we, think, we take all of our emotions, we put them in two categories. We go bad emotions, good emotions. Anger is a bad emotion. Bad emotions are sinful. Can I just blow that paradigm up for you this morning? That's just not true. Anger is an emotion. Think of your emotions as lights on the dashboard of your car. Right? When that light is flashing at you, it's not the light. There's something wrong under the hood. Right? You, you, the light is an indicator that something else is happening. And so being angry is not inherently sinful. It's what we do with our anger that determines whether we end up in sin or, or whether we don't, right? And so it's be angry and do not sin. Be angry and do not sin. Reflect on what it is you're angry about and be still. This is why I tell people all the time, you need to carve out one day a month to go away for like six to eight hours by yourself. Go sit in a field, or, or just go down to the beach or, or go on a hike, leave your cell phone in the car and spend some time alone. Even if you don't, you're not one of those people who journals, like you, you take your journal and your Bible and you come away with this really deep insight and 14 pages of notes on like how good God is. Don't feel like you got to get there, right? Just go away and be still. Just start with that. That's going to be hard enough for some of you. Like by the, by the second hour, you're having withdrawal from your phone. You're like, ah, I'm shaking. Got to check Facebook, right? Just, just go be still. Just go be still. This is, what, this is what it means. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Like, this is an important thing for us as people. We were not made to be connected all the time. Go get away and, and disconnect, right? Take a soul day. Fast from media consumption, Times of solitude and quiet and stillness and meditation. And then verse five, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Offer sacrifices. Well, we don't live in that old covenant system. So what does that look like for us? Nobody's bringing lambs to church and being like, yep, blood everywhere. Woo, Jesus, right? That's not happening. So what, is it, what does it look like for us to offer right sacrifices? Well, the word is Worship. Worth-ship. It's ascribing worth. It's, it's recognizing the worthiness, acknowledging the worthiness of God. Um, worship is, here's our definition I want to build for us, a right response to God. A right response to God for, for one, for who he is. Just by nature of who he is, he deserves our worship. He's the God who made all things. He's the God who gave us life. He deserves our worship. And then it's also a right response to God for what he's done. He's created this amazing place in which we live. He's blessed us with all the things that we have in our lives that are good. He's given us his only son, Jesus Christ. 
He deserves our worship. And so that Old Testament system, animals had to die as part of the worship because blood covers sin, right? We talked about this last week. But in the new covenant, Jesus' blood covers sin completely and permanently. So you go, so what does it look like practically? What does worship look like? Because we come in a room together and we sing some songs. Is that right worship? May I just submit to you that it's just a sliver of right worship. Like if you go through the rest of your week, seven days, and then you, but you spent one half of one hour with a group of other people who love Jesus singing some songs, and that's the extent of your worship, you are missing the heart of God in worship and what he wants for you. Worship is uh, what we do with our lives moment by moment. Worship is how, I love Eric Little, Chariots of Fire, if you've ever seen the movie, uh, he said, when I run, I feel the pleasure of God, right? And so he realized that he was made to do a thing. And when he did the thing that he was made to do, it honored God and it was actually worship. I had this season of my life um, in campus ministry when my guys would graduate college. If I had been discipling them for at least one year or more, I would study their last name. And if they didn't have a family coat of arms or a crest, I would design one for them and I would build a shield And I would paint their family crest on there. I would make one for them. And I would give it to them at graduation. And and I realized, like, when I'm in the garage and I'm cutting, like, half-inch plywood and sheet metal and riveting those things together and painting them and designing that, that was worship. It was worship. I was enjoying it because I was doing this thing. God gave me the creativity and the the, um, just thoughtfulness to do this for my guys. And it honored him because... I was, I was just operating in the fullness of his calling in my life, and that was worship. Now, that doesn't mean I could go sit in a boat and fish and be like, I, me and Jesus, we're cool. I don't have to go to church, right? There's, there's also a place for corporate worship that's necessary for the believer, right? But when we, it, it's what Paul says, Romans 12, 1 and 2, right? You guys know this verse? Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but what? Be transformed by the renewing of your minds that you may prove and attest what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So as you're being transformed to be like Jesus, it's shaping your decision-making, it's shaping the way you live your life, and that becomes worship unto God. So offer right sacrifices. Yeah, come to church on Sunday. Worship with the people of God. Engage in singing and in the hearing of the word and let it get into you. But also make Christ-honoring decisions every day. Love your family well. Work hard as unto the Lord, right? Those are all worship. That's all worship. Verse six, there are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. I love this idea, this, this question, who can show us anything good? Well, well, gazing upon the Lord and his majesty is good. Like focusing on Jesus every day as we go about our work and our lives is good. Uh, versus, like what's the alternative, would be to focus on the world around us. It, it, if I watch a lot of TV, especially any news channel, I tend to get depressed. I don't know about you. I get discouraged. There's a lot of bad stuff happening in the world that quite honestly, I don't need to know about. I don't, I don't, things that happen in Ghana, I'm, uh, 
Do I need to carry the burden of something that happened in Ghana? I don't know that I do, right? And, and I, I just kind of made it a rule about five or six years ago. Like, I can't listen to talk radio because wherever I end up in the car, wherever I'm going, I end up angry when I get there, right? And so there's just, there's, who can show us anything good? So I can either choose to fix my eyes upon Jesus and gaze at the majesty of God, or I can look at the world. But I can't do both. I just can't do both. One of those things is going to grow brighter and more focused and the other one's going to grow dim, right? Whatever your focus is on, am I going to focus on Jesus or am I going to focus on the world? One's going to grow brighter and clearer and focused and the other will grow dim. And, and, and as I was writing that this week, I thought about the hymn that I grew up singing. Maybe some of you did too. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, right? Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And what happens is as you begin to focus on the Lord, Every day and week after week, you, you look back around at the world at one point and you go, why was I ever even enamored with those things? Why? I mean, I, there, there are places that I go today that, you know, even 10 years ago, I, I go, why was that even a draw for me? Why was that even a thing? And I, and I watch people who don't know Christ be consumed with some of these things and it, and it elicits a heart of compassion in me. Right? Because once I was there and I was consumed with those things too, I had to go to the outlet mall this week. That was a trial. Right? I had to go to the Seattle Premium Outlets. And you just see people like in and out, you know, I gotta buy all this stuff, I gotta have all these things. And um, I thought that that was me. That was me. Lord set me free from the things of this world. Let me focus on Jesus and the things of this world grow strangely dim. That's not to say you don't need new clothes. Some of you go, go buy some clothes. Um, I needed new clothes this week. You have put more joy in my heart than when their grain and new wine abound. This is the focal point of the whole Psalm. You get to verse seven. Um, because new grain and wine, that's, that speaks to a time of harvest, right? If you live in an agrarian society, first century, or David, the time David's writing, much earlier, right? This is a time of celebration. You have poured out your strength, all your effort. You've invested money and time in trying to yield produce, whether it's grapes or wheat or barley or whatever it is, all that grain, because that harvest sets you up to be able to feed your family and buy and sell and trade with other people to get the things that you need. Whereas until the point of the harvest is kind of acting in faith, you're like, well, I think this is going to come through and I hope that fire's not going to burn out my field. And, and then once you've harvested that and it's there, there's a sense of relief. Oh, right. I have it. And God came through and he's blessed us and we have plenty. And it's a time of celebration and gladness. We rest in the Lord's provision, right? It's like um, we, all of our needs are met, right? We have, we have and, and we, by the way, have to sort out needs from wants. That's, that's a tough one. Can we just take some time this week to go, what's actually in the want category? Because I know there's things that I'll tell Jen, I need this. She's like, no, you don't, right? If you have trouble sorting that out, get a wife. She'll sort it out for you, right? Need and want. <clears throat> It's contentment, it's, it's celebration. And then he says, in peace I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. So this idea of peace and joy and gladness brings you to a place of rest, 
right? It brings you to the place of God is the one watching me and protecting me. So Sabbath, which I don't know when you take your Sabbath, Sunday's not really a Sabbath day for me (laughs) as a pastor, but whenever you take your day of rest, it's an act of faith. It's an act of faith. Well, the rest of the world is scrambling seven days a week in the rat race to to make as much money as they can and to, to achieve what they think is security in this life. We're, we're going to, as the people of God, step back from that on one day of the week and go, yeah, we don't have to do that because God takes care of us, right? We believe in faith that God's going to see that all of our needs are met and we're not going to starve to death and we're going to be okay and, and we trust him. So Sabbath is an act of faith, right? Just like tithing is an act of faith. When we tithe, when we give, um, by the way, tithing is just training wheels for generosity. Jen got up here and talked about generosity. 10%, that's training wheels, Okay, training wheels. Aspiring leaders in the church must learn to be generous with their resources that God has entrusted them with, whatever those resources are. And I'll just say this, stingy people make terrible leaders. So because of the peace of God and because of his presence and comfort and because of his provision in our lives as his children, we are free to rest. We are free to be generous. We're free to just find our peace in him and our gladness in him. Even more than when the grain and new wine abound, when people are like, yeah, this is awesome. We live in a place that's beyond that because we're continually taken care of by the God who made everything. And so all of this is summed up. All of this is wrapped up in this statement. Psalm 4 is really a pervasive view of the world around us and of the life that we've been given which is permeated by an overwhelming gladness. Our lives as as followers of Jesus should be marked by and permeated by an overwhelming sense of gladness. God has loved us and he's poured out his grace upon us. And I get this objection, right? I get this pushback from some people when we talk about this. I can be happy apart from God. Well, listen, you, you might be able to tap into some circumstantial happiness for pockets and seasons of time when things are going well in your life, but you will never, please hear me, you will never experience lasting, transcendent joy and gladness of heart that carries you beyond those circumstances and those moments apart from the one true and living God. You will never have that. You will never have it. Joy and gladness result from continually cultivating God's presence in our lives. David says of Jesus, I saw the Lord always in my presence for he's at my right hand. I will not be shaken, right? Jesus lived each moment very aware of the Father's presence. He never had a second that he lived unto himself. And the only time he didn't know the Father's presence was that awful moment on the cross when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus always lived in the presence of the Father. And I think that's the key to joy and gladness for us, is to cultivate daily that sense of God's presence in our lives. If we, even, even when we go through hardship and trials, we, we, won't, we won't lose our joy because God's with us. And I, I love Jonathan Edwards, the Puritan preacher. He entitled it, uh, he expressed this well in a sermon. He says, God, the best portion of the Christian. I'll just read you this quick paragraph that Jonathan Edwards uh, wrote. He says, hence, we may learn that whatever changes a godly person passes through, he's happy, he's glad, because God, who is unchangeable in his chosen portion. So, so God's the constant, right? God's the constant, not my circumstances. 
though he meet with temporal losses and be deprived of many, yea, even all of his temporal enjoyments, yet God, whom he prefers above all things, still remains and cannot be lost. While he stays in this changeable and troublesome world, he is glad because his chosen portion on which he builds as his main foundation for happiness is above the world. Now we're back to Ecclesiastes under the sun, right? That, that foundation's not part of this world system. It's outside of it, right? It's above the world and above all changes. And when he goes into another world, still he is happy because his portion yet remains. But how great is the happiness of those who have chosen the fountain of all which is good and who prefer him before all things in heaven and on earth and who can never be deprived of that for all eternity. Man, that is joy. Paul would sum it up this way when he writes to the Colossians. He says, I want you to put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. I want you, I want you to like, imagine getting dressed in compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Just put those things on, right? If you've got a complaint against somebody else, forgive them. Just like the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive and above all these things, put on love, which binds it all together in perfect harmony. And then he says this, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful and let the word of Christ get in you and dwell in you richly, teaching you, admonishing one another with all wisdom. And, and, and the way that overflows, he says, so then we're singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, which is what we do every Sunday together because there's gladness in the Lord, right? With thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, right? Now we're back to Romans 12. Your decisions you make, the way you live your life, whatever you do, in word or in deed, when you're outside the four walls of the church building, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus and give thanks to God the Father through him. Give thanks to God the Father through him and gladness wells up in us as we're drawn near to the heart of God. And so we reach the headwaters of the river, right? Gratitude and thanksgiving is that wellspring that feeds a sense of contentment in our hearts. I don't need all that stuff because I'm content in the Lord. And then when that river runs its course, it spills over the waterfall of simplicity and life and gladness. And then the spirit calls us to respond to God, right? With hearts of thanksgiving. And that's our worship. That's our worship. And I just say to you this morning that if God never did a single thing for you other than save you by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, you would be indebted to him beyond measure. You'd be indebted to him beyond measure. He would be worthy of all your praise and all your worship for all of your days. And yet he does so much more, abundantly more, right? So let me give you a couple, two practical things I want to encourage you to do. And you're here this morning at Emmaus Road. So this first one, probably you're already moving in this direction. The first one is invest yourself in gospel community. Invest yourself in gospel community in the local church. If you haven't already, you're missing God's will for you and his rich blessings because he uses the church as the vessel through which he does much of that. Cultivating transparency, um, emotional connectedness with the local church helps generate gratitude as you see other people's lives. Partly it's like they're just as screwed up as I am. Thank you, Lord, right? There's some gratitude there and, and there's some thanks, thanksgiving that comes out of that connectedness as you walk 
through life with each other and you have each other to lean on and to go to in moments of distress. Say, pray for me, I need help, right? The struggles, the victories, the hardships, the celebrations, that all happens in the body, right? It doesn't happen out there by yourself. That happens as part of the body. So number one, invest in gospel community. Number two, can I just encourage you to slow down? Slow down. Practice some of the things we've already talked about this morning, like unplugging for periods of time. Technology fasts. Right? If you've got small kids and you know, they're popping in Blu-rays and DVDs all the time, especially in the summertime, our house is like, okay, everybody off your screen now. Eight hours, no screens. And then by the second hour, there are withdrawal symptoms, right? The shakes again, and the, right? But practice that slowing down. Take a soul day once a month. Get away. Carve it out. Put it on your calendar. Guard it ferociously. And then go away for six or eight hours and just be by yourself, right? It, even if it means going to Starbucks and getting a venti, right? And then you can borrow my mowing headphones that I use and, and just sit in the corner where you can't hear anything. You're just like in your own ISO booth. It's fabulous, Coffee and isolation, amazing, amazing, right? Go to the mountains, go to the beach, not just to hike, but to sit and listen, to watch and observe and just worship. And be still before the Lord of all the earth and be glad. Be glad in him. This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and what? Be glad in him. Lord Jesus, would you meet us in this place of weakness as your people Your word says, just right even here in Psalm 4, you answer us when we call and you hear our prayer. So we pray to you right now and ask you to meet us in our weakness. You've set apart the godly for yourself and you hear us when we call to you. Thank you, Lord. Help us to offer right sacrifices to you and to put our trust in you. And Lord, would you lift up your face upon us and put more joy in our hearts than when we get our tax returns. Put more joy in our hearts than when we get our Christmas bonus checks. Lord, and let us walk in that. And thank you for the freedom to lie down in peace and to rest in you because you alone cause us to dwell in safety and security. Lord, we love you. We pray all these things in your mighty name. Amen.